Section 37 of Mark Twain's Autobiography, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by John Greenman. Thursday, March 29, 1906. Mr. Clemens as apprentice to Mr. Ament. Wilhelm II's dinner and the potato incident. The printing of Reverend Alexander Campbell's sermon. Incident of dropping watermelon on Henry's head. Orion buys Hannibal Journal, which is a failure. Then he goes to Muscatine, Iowa, and marries. Mr. Clemens starts out alone to see the world, visits St. Louis, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, then goes to Muscatine and works in Orion's office, finds fifty-dollar bill, thinks of going to explore the Amazon and collect coca, gets Horace Bixby to train him as pilot, Starts with Orion for Nevada, when Orion is made secretary to Territory of Nevada. But I am in error. Orion did not come to Hannibal until two or three years after my father's death. He remained in St. Louis. He was a journeyman printer, and earning wages. Out of his wage, he supported my mother and my brother, Henry, who was two years younger than I. My sister, Pamela, helped in this support by taking piano pupils. Thus we got along, but it was pretty hard sledding. I was not one of the burdens, because I was taken from school at once upon my father's death, and placed in the office of the Hannibal Courier as printer's apprentice, and Mr. Ament, the editor and proprietor of the paper, allowed me the usual emolument of the office of apprentice, that is to say, board and clothes, but no money. The clothes consisted of two suits a year, but one of the suits always failed to materialize, and the other suit was not purchased so long as Mr. Ament's old clothes held out. I was only about half as big as Ament. Consequently, his shirts gave me the uncomfortable sense of living in a circus tent, and I had to turn up his pants to my ears to make them short enough. There were two other apprentices. One was Wales McCormick, seventeen or eighteen years old, and a giant. When he was in Ament's clothes, they fitted him as the candle mold fits the candle. Thus he was generally in a suffocated condition, particularly in the summer time. He was a reckless, hilarious, admirable creature. He had no principles, and was delightful company. At first we three apprentices had to feed in the kitchen with the old slave cook and her very handsome and bright and well-behaved young mulatto daughter. For his own amusement, for he was not generally laboring for other people's amusement, Wales was constantly and persistently and loudly and elaborately making love to that mulatto girl, and distressing the life out of her, and worrying the old mother to death. 
she would say, Now, Mars Wales, Mars Wales, can't you behave yourself? With encouragement like that, Wales would naturally renew his attentions and emphasize them. It was killingly funny to Ralph and me, and to speak truly, the old mother's distress about it was merely a pretense. She quite well understood that by the customs of slave-holding communities it was Wales' right to make love to that girl if he wanted to, but the girl's distress was very real. She had a refined nature, and she took all Wales' extravagant love-making in earnest. We got but little variety in the way of food at that kitchen table. There wasn't enough of it, anyway. So we apprentices used to keep alive by arts of our own. That is to say, we crept into the cellar nearly every night by a private entrance which we had discovered, and we robbed the cellar of potatoes and onions and such things and carried them downtown to the printing office where we slept on pallets on the floor and cooked them at the stove and had very good times. Wales had a secret of cooking a potato which was noble and wonderful and all his own. Since Wales' day I have seen a potato cooked in that way only once. It was when Wilhelm II, Emperor of Germany, commanded my presence at a private feed toward the end of the year 1891, and when that potato appeared on the table it surprised me out of my discretion and made me commit the unforgivable sin before I could get a grip on my discretion again. That is to say, I made a joyful exclamation of welcome over the potato, addressing my remark to the emperor at my side without waiting for him to take the first innings. I think he honestly tried to pretend that he was not shocked and outraged, but he plainly was, and so were the other half-dozen grandees who were present. They were all petrified, and nobody could have said a word if he had tried. The ghastly silence endured for as much as half a minute, and would have lasted until now, of course, if the emperor hadn't broken it himself, for no one else there would have ventured that. It was at half-past six in the evening, and the frost did not get out of the atmosphere entirely until close upon midnight, when it did finally melt away or wash away under generous floods of beer. As I have indicated, Mr. Ament's economies were of a pretty close and rigid kind. By and by, when we apprentices were promoted from the basement to the ground floor and allowed to sit at the family table, along with the one journeyman, Pet McMurray, the economies continued, 
Mrs. Ament was a bride. She had attained to that distinction very recently, after waiting a good part of a lifetime for it, and she was the right woman in the right place, according to the Amantian idea, for she did not trust the sugar bowl to us, but sweetened our coffee herself. That is, she went through the motions. She didn't really sweeten it. She seemed to put one heaping teaspoonful of brown sugar into each cup, but according to Wales, that was a deceit. He said she dipped the spoon in the coffee first to make the sugar stick, and then scooped the sugar out of the bowl with the spoon upside down, so that the effect to the eye was a heaped-up spoon, whereas the sugar on it was nothing but a layer. This all seems perfectly true to me, and yet that thing would be so difficult to perform that I suppose it really didn't happen, but was one of Wales' lies. I have said that Wales was reckless, and he, he was. It was the recklessness of ever-bubbling and indestructible good spirits flowing from the joy of youth. I think there wasn't anything that that vast boy wouldn't do to procure five minutes' entertainment for himself. One never knew where he would break out next. Among his shining characteristics was the most limitless and adorable irreverence. There didn't seem to be anything serious in life for him. There didn't seem to be anything that he revered. Once the celebrated founder of the, at that time, new and widespread sect called Campbellites arrived in our village from Kentucky, and it made a prodigious excitement. Farmers and their families drove or tramped into the village from miles around to get a sight of the illustrious Alexander Campbell, and to have a chance to hear him preach. When he preached in a church, many had to be disappointed, for there was no church that would begin to hold all the applicants. So, in order to accommodate all, he preached in the open air, in the public square, and that was the first time in my life that I had realized what a mighty population this planet contains when you get them all together. He preached a sermon on one of these occasions, which he had written especially for that occasion. All the Campbellites wanted it printed, so that they could save it and read it over and over again, and get it by heart. So they drummed up sixteen dollars, which was a large sum then, and for this great sum Mr. Ament contracted to print five hundred copies of that sermon and put them in yellow paper covers. It was a sixteen-page duodecimo pamphlet, and it was a great event in our office. As we regarded it, it was a book 
and it promoted us to the dignity of book printers. Moreover, no such mass of actual money as sixteen dollars in one bunch had ever entered that office on any previous occasion. People didn't pay for their paper and for their advertising in money. They paid in dry goods, sugar, coffee, hickory wood, oak wood, turnips, pumpkins, onions, watermelons, and it was very seldom indeed that a man paid in money, and when that happened we thought there was something the matter with him. We set up the great book in pages, eight pages to a form, and by help of a printer's manual we managed to get the pages in their apparently crazy but really sane places on the imposing stone. We printed that form on a Thursday. Then we set up the remaining eight pages, locked them into a form, and struck a proof. Wales read the proof, and presently was aghast, for he had struck a snag and it was a bad time to strike a snag, because it was Saturday. It was approaching noon. Saturday afternoon was our holiday, and we wanted to get away and go fishing. At such a time as this, Wales struck that snag and showed us what had happened. He had left out a couple of words in a thin-spaced page of solid matter, and there wasn't another break line for two or three pages ahead. What in the world was to be done? Overrun all those pages in order to get in the two missing words? Apparently there was no other way. It would take an hour to do it. Then a revise must be sent to the great minister, we must wait for him to read the revise. If he encountered any errors, we must correct them. It looked as if we might lose half the afternoon before we could get away. Then Wales had one of his brilliant ideas. In the line in which the out had been made occurred the name Jesus Christ. Wales reduced it in the French way to J.C. It made room for the missing words, but it took 99% of the solemnity out of a particularly solemn sentence. We sent off the revise and waited. We were not intending to wait long. In the circumstances, we meant to get out and go fishing before that revise should get back but we were not speedy enough. Presently that great Alexander Campbell appeared at the far end of that sixty-foot room, and his countenance cast a gloom over the whole place. He strode down to our end, and what he said was brief, but it was very stern, and it was to the point. He read Wales a lecture. He said, So long as you live, 
don't you ever diminish the Savior's name again. Put it all in. He repeated this admonition a couple of times to emphasize it. Then he went away. In that day the common swearer of the region had a way of their own of emphasizing the Savior's name when they were using it profanely, and this fact intruded itself into Wales's incorrigible mind. It offered him an opportunity for a momentary entertainment which seemed to him to be more precious and more valuable than even fishing and swimming could afford. So he imposed upon himself the long and weary and dreary task of overrunning all those three pages in order to improve upon his former work, and incidentally and thoughtfully improve upon the great preacher's admonition. He enlarged the offending J.C. into Jesus H. Christ. Wales knew that that would make prodigious trouble, and it did, but it was not in him to resist it. He had to succumb to the law of his make. I don't remember what his punishment was, but he was not the person to care for that. He had already collected his dividend. It was during my first year's apprenticeship in the courier office that I did a thing which I have been trying to regret for fifty-five years. It was a summer afternoon, and just the kind of weather that a boy prizes for river excursions and other frolics, but I was a prisoner. The others were all gone holidaying. I was alone and sad. I had committed a crime of some sort, and this was the punishment. I must lose my holiday and spend the afternoon in solitude besides. I had the printing office all to myself. There in the third story. I had one comfort, and it was a generous one, while it lasted. It was the half of a long and broad watermelon, fresh and red and ripe. I gouged it out with a knife, and I found accommodation for the whole of it in my person, though it did crowd me until the juice ran out of my ears. There remained then the shell the hollow shell. It was big enough to do duty as a cradle. I didn't want to waste it, and I couldn't think of anything to do with it which could afford entertainment. I was sitting at the open window which looked out upon the sidewalk of the main street three stories below, when it occurred to me to drop it on somebody's head. I doubted the judiciousness of this, and I had some compunctions about it, too, because so much of the resulting entertainment would fall to my share and so little to the other person. But I thought I would chance it. I watched out of the window for the right person to come along, the safe person, but he didn't come. Every time there was a candidate, he or she turned out to be an unsafe one, 
and I had to restrain myself. But at last I saw the right one coming. It was my brother Henry. He was the best boy in the whole region. He never did harm to anybody. He never offended anybody. He was exasperatingly good. He had an overflowing abundance of goodness, but not enough to save him this time. I watched his approach with eager interest. He came strolling along, dreaming his pleasant summer dream, and not doubting but that Providence had him in his care. If he had known where I was he would have had less confidence in that superstition. As he approached his form became more and more foreshortened. When he was almost under me he was so foreshortened that nothing of him was visible from my high place except the end of his nose and his alternately approaching feet. Then I poised the watermelon, calculated my distance, and let it go hollow side down. The accuracy of that gunnery was beyond admiration. He had about six steps to make when I let that canoe go, and it was lovely to see those two bodies gradually closing in on each other. If he had had seven steps to make, or five steps to make, my gunnery would have been a failure. But he had exactly the right number to make, and that shell smashed down right on the top of his head and drove him into the earth up to the chin, the chunks of that broken melon flying in every direction like a spray. I wanted to go down there and condole with him, but it would not have been safe. He would have suspected me at once. I expected him to suspect me anyway. But as he said nothing about this adventure for two or three days, I was watching him in the meantime in order to keep out of danger, I was deceived into believing that this time he didn't suspect me. It was a mistake. He was only waiting for a sure opportunity. Then he landed a cobblestone on the side of my head, which raised a bump there so large that I had to wear two hats for a time. I carried this crime to my mother, for I was always anxious to get Henry into trouble with her, and could never succeed. I thought that I had a sure case this time, when she should come to see that murderous bump. I showed it to her, but she said it was no matter. She didn't need to inquire into the circumstances. She knew I had deserved it, and the best way would be for me to accept it as a valuable lesson, and thereby get profit out of it. About 1849 or 1850, Orion severed his connection with the printing house in St. Louis, and came up to Hannibal, and bought a weekly paper called the Hannibal Journal, together with its plant and its goodwill, for the sum of five hundred dollars cash. 
He borrowed the cash at ten percent interest from an old farmer named Johnson who lived five miles out of town. Then he reduced the subscription price of the paper from two dollars to one dollar. He reduced the rates for advertising in about the same proportion, and thus he created one absolute and unassailable certainty, to wit, that the business would never pay him a single cent of profit. He took me out of the courier office and engaged my services in his own at three dollars and a half a week, which was an extravagant wage, but Orion was always generous, always liberal with everybody, except himself. It cost him nothing in my case, for he never was able to pay me a single penny as long as I was with him. By the end of the first year he found he must make some economies. The office rent was cheap, but it was not cheap enough. He could not afford to pay rent of any kind, so he moved the whole plant into the house we lived in, and it cramped the dwelling place cruelly. He kept that paper alive during four years, but I have at this time no idea how he accomplished it. Toward the end of each year he had to turn out and scrape and scratch for the fifty dollars of interest due Mr. Johnson, and that fifty dollars was about the only cash he ever received or paid out, I suppose, while he was proprietor of that newspaper, except for ink and printing paper. The paper was a dead failure. It had to be that from the start. Finally he handed it over to Mr. Johnson and went up to Muscatine, Iowa, and acquired a small interest in a weekly newspaper there. It was not a sort of property to marry on, but no matter. He came across a winning and pretty girl who lived in Quincy, Illinois, a few miles below Keokuk, and they became engaged. He was always falling in love with girls, but by some accident or other he had never gone so far as engagement before, and now he achieved nothing but misfortune by it, because he straightway fell in love with a Keokuk girl. At least he imagined that he was in love with her, whereas I think she did the imagining for him. The first thing he knew he was engaged to her, and he was in a great quandary. He didn't know whether to marry the Keokuk one or the Quincy one, or whether to marry both of them and suit everyone concerned. But the Keokuk girl soon settled that for him. She was a master spirit, and she ordered him to right the Quincy girl and break off that match, which he did. Then he married the Keokuk girl, and they began a struggle for life, which turned out to be a difficult enterprise, and very unpromising. To gain a living in Muscatine was plainly impossible, so Orion and his new wife went to Keokuk to live, for she wanted to be near her relatives. He bought a little bit of a job-printing plant 
on credit, of course, and at once put prices down to where not even the apprentices could get a living out of it, and this sort of thing went on. I had not joined the Muscatine migration. Just before that happened, which I think was in 1853, I disappeared one night and fled to St. Louis. There I worked in the composing room of the evening news for a time, and then started on my travels to see the world. The world was New York City, and there was a little World's Fair there. It had just been opened where the great reservoir afterward was, and where the sumptuous public library is now being built, Fifth Avenue and 42nd Street. I arrived in New York with two or three dollars in pocket change and a ten-dollar bank bill concealed in the lining of my coat. I got work at villainous wages in the establishment of John A. Gray and Green in Cliff Street, and I found board in a sufficiently villainous mechanics boarding house in Duane Street. The firm paid my wages in wildcat money at its face value, and my week's wage merely sufficed to pay board and lodging. By and by I went to Philadelphia and worked there some months as a sub on the Inquirer and the Public Ledger. Finally I made a flying trip to Washington to see the sights there and in 1854 I went back to Mississippi Valley, sitting upright in a smoking car two or three days and nights. When I reached St. Louis I was exhausted. I went to bed on board a steamboat that was bound for Muscatine. I fell asleep at once with my clothes on and didn't wake up for thirty-six hours. I worked in that little job office in Keokuk as much as two years, I should say, without ever collecting a cent of wages, for Orion was never able to pay anything. But Dick Hickam and I had good times. I don't know what Dick got, but it was probably only uncashable promises. One day in the midwinter of 1856 or 1857, well, I think it was 1856, I was coming along the main street of Keokuk in the middle of the forenoon. It was bitter weather, so bitter that that street was deserted almost. A light dry snow was blowing here and there on the ground and on the pavement, swirling this way and that way and making all sorts of beautiful figures but very chilly to look at the wind blew a piece of paper past me and it lodged against a wall of a house something about the look of it attracted my attention and i gathered it in it was a fifty-dollar bill the only one i had ever seen and the largest assemblage of money I had ever seen in one spot. I advertised it in the papers 
and suffered more than a thousand dollars worth of solicitude and fear and distress during the next few days, lest the owner should see the advertisement and come and take my fortune away. As many as four days went by without an applicant, then I could endure this kind of misery no longer. I felt sure that another four could not go by in this safe and secure way. I felt that I must take that money out of danger. So I bought a ticket for Cincinnati and went to that city. I worked there several months in the printing office of Wrightson and Company. I had been reading Lieutenant Herndon's account of his explorations of the Amazon, and had been mightily attracted by what he said of coca. I made up my mind that I would go to the headwaters of the Amazon and collect coca and trade in it and make a fortune. I left for New Orleans in the steamer Paul Jones with this great idea filling my mind. One of the pilots of that boat was Horace Bixby. Little by little I got acquainted with him, and pretty soon I was doing a lot of steering for him in his daylight watches. When I got to New Orleans I inquired about ships leaving for Pará and discovered that there weren't any, and learned that there probably wouldn't be any during that century. It had not occurred to me to inquire about these particulars before leaving Cincinnati, so there I was. I couldn't get to the Amazon. I had no friends in New Orleans, and no money to speak of. I went to Horace Bixby and asked him to make a pilot out of me. He said he would do it for $500, $100 cash in advance. So I steered for him up to St. Louis, borrowed the money from my brother-in-law, and closed the bargain. I had acquired this brother-in-law several years before. This was Mr. William A. Moffat, a merchant, a Virginian, a fine man in every way. He had married my sister Pamela, and the Samuel E. Moffat of whom I have been speaking was their son. Within eighteen months I was become a competent pilot, and I served that office until the Mississippi River traffic was brought to a standstill by the breaking out of the Civil War. Meantime, Orion had been sweating along with his little job office in Keokuk, and he and his wife were living with his wife's family, ostensibly as boarders, but it is not likely that Orion was ever able to pay the board. On account of charging nothing for the work done in his job office, he had almost nothing to do there. He was never able to get it through his head that work done on a profitless basis deteriorates and is presently not worth anything, and that 
customers are obliged to go where they can get better work, even if they must pay better prices for it. He had plenty of time, and he took up Blackstone again. He also put up a sign which offered his services to the public as a lawyer. He never got a case in those days, nor even an applicant, although he was quite willing to transact law business for nothing and furnish the stationery himself. He was always liberal that way. Presently he moved to a wee little hamlet called Alexandria, two or three miles down the river, and he put up that sign there. He got no bites. He was by this time very hard aground. But by this time I was beginning to earn a wage of two hundred and fifty dollars a month as pilot, and so I supported him thenceforth until 1861, when his ancient friend Edward Bates, then a member of Mr. Lincoln's first cabinet, got him the place of secretary of the new territory of Nevada, and Orion and I cleared for that country in the overland stagecoach, I paying the fares, which were pretty heavy, and carrying with me what money I had been able to save. This was eight hundred dollars, I should say, and it was all in silver coin, and a good deal of a nuisance because of its weight. And we had another nuisance, which was an unabridged dictionary. It weighed about a thousand pounds, and was a ruinous expense, because the stagecoach company charged for extra baggage by the ounce. We could have kept a family for a time on what that dictionary cost in the way of extra freight, and it wasn't a good dictionary anyway. Didn't have any modern words in it, only had obsolete ones that they used to use when Noah Webster was a child. End of section 37, Thursday, March 29, 1906.